We're going to study God's Word, so if you would, open your Bible as we continue in our Ephesians series. If you'd open to Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to hopefully be built up again by God's Word as we look at this together. So what we're doing is we're doing a little leapfrog, right? So originally the plan was not to spend two weeks on marriage, but to spend one week on marriage. So I called an audible and said, let's, let's dig into this a little bit more. So it's been two weeks, and that threw everything off, right? So Chip had already been starting his work in the passage we studied last week. So now we're going to jump back to chapter 6, verse 1, and then next week we're going to jump over the passage Chip preached last week. This is the mayhem that's created when a pastor just says, hey, let's do something different. Anyway, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse one, if you would follow along as, uh, as I read. And let me just say, if you're new here, uh, we've got message notes. So if, even if you're watching online, live streaming, you can get our message notes at brookhills.org slash worship guide, and you can track along. Uh, so if this is new to you, we're moving through this book, this letter from the Apostle Paul, and just studying it line upon line. So chapter six, if you'd follow along, we're going to start reading from Scripture. Apostle Paul writes these words to the church at Ephesus. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So before we, we dive in and get started, I gave you at the top of your notes, if you're following and tracking with that, a kind of summary of what this text is after. So here it is. We'll just review this by way of summarizing the main idea. God causes families to flourish when parents nurture faith-filled obedience, not bark it into existence, but nurture faith-filled obedience in our children, and when children welcome this as God's good design. Let me read that again. God causes families to flourish when parents nurture faith-filled obedience in our children, and when children welcome this as God's good design. So, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, we've talked about this the last few weeks, about the fall and what happened there in the early goings of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3. So everything was right, everything was good. God brought Eve to, to Adam's side as his helper and there was this complementarity dance in the garden. Everything was right and it was, it was good and then they rebelled against God in Genesis chapter 3. They ate the forbidden fruit. They broke the one command that God had given them. And then sin just comes flooding into the world and a curse comes flooding into the world. And that curse affected everything in all of creation. It affected every relationship, vertical relationships, horizontal relationships. So it's not just that their relationship with God is busted up and messed up and distorted in a major way but their relationship with one another, the blame game. They're going to do it like they're old hats. They're going to do it like they've been doing it for years. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's your fault, right? All this stuff just starts happening, and then, and then new life comes, and, and it's a boy, and his name is Cain, and Cain grows up, and he kills his younger brother, right? So it just you see in the early goings of, of God's word that sin brings brokenness and dysfunction, first of all, into family, Family is, 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 is met with this, this fallen 
aspect, all the things that have been broken by their rebellion. And what God is doing here in Genesis, in in Ephesians chapter six, is he is drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, there's a new way, there's a path back to my design. There's a path, there's a way back to what I created there in the garden. There's a sense in which you could amend the familiar words to many of us in the church from 2 Corinthians chapter five, when the apostle Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. There's a sense in which we could say, God's design is to say, if any family is in Christ, that family can become a new creation. Old things can start passing away. New things can start coming into existence. That's the purpose of Ephesians chapter six. I, um, I have a friend, maybe many of us here, the very place where God has designed you to experience the most safety and security and love and nurture, that very place is the most damaging, hurtful place in your life, and that place is called family. I had a friend who was across the street and about three doors down, and when his family moved into our neighborhood, we became friends and we started riding bikes together and shooting our BB guns at the Nutra rats in the canal down the street, right? We're just boys having fun on the block. And, uh, and I realized he always wanted to play at my house. He didn't want us to play at his house. He would even bring his game system to my house. Um, his parents had more money, they, they both had jobs, and and they were, they were doing well in life, and so they would bless them, and they would give them a lot of things, but he, he wanted to take those things and leave his house and come to our house. And, and the couple times that I went over to his house, I discovered quickly why that was, that his parents hated each other, that his sister and him hated their parents, that his sister and him hated one another. There was just this chill in the air at their house. And I remember going to their house and seeing a ding in the wall and he said that was, a, that was from a fight that his parents had had the night before. There was no sense of belonging and security and love and mutual honor and laying down one's life for another. That wasn't what he saw, so he wanted to get out of his environment. And Ephesians 6 is saying to believing families, I want your house to be that environment. It's, it's, in a sense, God is saying, I want to draw a circle around your home address and I want to pour blessing into that circle. <laughs> I want to pour my grace into your home, into your marriage, into your family, into your kids. I want to put my word and stall my spirit into your home so that new things start growing. A garden is flourishing in your house right where Satan had staked his claim. God says, I'm going to write a new story right there, a story of redemption in your household. So this passage, it it employs something called direct address, which just means it says, look at verse one, children, and then God talks to children. And then verse four, fathers, and then God talks to parents. So it made the sermon outline really easy for me this week. Children, God talks to kids, God talks to parents. That's the outline. So the first point is this, God talks to kids. And what does God say when he talks to kids? He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. I'll just note in passing that the Apostle Paul 
Ephesians is not written and sent only to the nuclear families in the congregation at Ephesus. It's it's read to the whole church. The entire congregation is listening in on what's supposed to be happening in Christian families. So what's the quick take home? The quick take home is it's going to take the whole church to bring about healthy families. Nobody's outside. We all need to dial into the conversation about what makes families healthy, single adults, families, seniors. It takes the whole church to make a healthy family. What else do you learn? Another thing that I think you learn in that is that God speaks to children as if they're in the church. So it's a letter to the congregation, and he's saying, hey, kids. In other words, he's assuming the kids are there. What's that mean? I think, I think the undercurrent of that means we should raise our children in the church. We should raise our children to love God's glory in the church. We should raise them so that the sound of the singing of God's people is familiar to them. I remember keenly as a child, they had no idea. There was actually one time where they did have an idea, but I remember keenly looking around, practically stalking (laughs) the members of the congregation as they stood, and I would just pan my head back. I would just people watch when I was a little kid during worship, and I would watch. I remember looking over to my left. He would have been right here. Wayne Jordina and Stan Holmes and Miss Dottie and Diane. And I remember looking around and watching them get their worship on, watching them pursue the Lord, watching them eager to hear his word. I studied them. Our kids are watching. They're noticing these things. That's part of God's means of grace in raising a generation that loves Jesus. What's another implication of this is is that when kids come to faith, Let's baptize them, and let's go nuts when they share their testimony. Let's not golf clap. Let's go nuts because what? God raised the dead. He's saving our children. That's our, that's our deepest prayer, that God would get into the hearts of our kids and give them an experience of his grace, and then once they've been baptized, encourage them to pursue membership in the church. God is speaking to children as if they're in the church because he wants them to grow up in that context. So God is saying, I want to talk to kids. And I say kids, and God talks to kids here, because the emphasis in this text seems to be on um, the years when children are in the house. In this, this same passage, he talks about bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or bringing them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's talking about those formative years when they are in the house. There's a particular way in which God is talking to kids here, and that's why probably the primary command is obey. He's going to quote from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20, which God spoke to everyone in Israel, adults in Israel and everyone, and said, honor your father and mother. Honor takes the shape when children are in the home of obedience. That's how you see it. Honor as children grow older and they're not in the house looks like support. It looks like respect. It takes on a slightly different shape, right? So the primary command here is obey. That's why here here in your notes we're going to mark that. Obedience to parents is right. (laughs) Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. You know, the idea of of parents being sort of best friends or peers with their kids is a modern invention. In, in scripture and in ancient times, it was widely recognized. It was a universally recognized thing. The parents are the heavyweights in the house. 
Their words weigh more than everybody else's. They're, they're not just the people in the house who happen to be here and they happen to be older. They happen to be here and they're less agile. They happen to be here and they know how to make food. That, that, that's not a biblical vision of what parents are there for. Parents are there to parent. They are installed as authorities by God's design. Matter of fact, in that Old Testament text that Paul quotes in Exodus chapter 20, the word honor your father and mother, it's the Hebrew word kaved. It's the word that means weight. It literally means give weight. It's their way of saying time has not made y'all equal. Your parents' words are wise words. They count more than your friends. They count more than your own internal dialogue. Listen to your parents. Honor your parents. Count them as heavyweights. And by quoting here from Exodus, Paul, in a sense, you bear in mind, so this is a largely Gentile audience. They weren't necessarily steeped in the stories of Old Testament Israel. And so it's almost like Paul is taking this Gentile church of largely relatively new believers and he's putting them on the magic school bus, right? And he's, he's driving them back 1,500 years to Mount Sinai where God made a covenant with Israel and he spoke these words. And, and what happened at Mount Sinai? Well, God carves with his own finger a slab out of Mount Sinai. And it's not a massive slab, it's a slab that's got to be big enough for Moses to carry down the mountain. So you can't write everything in the Old Testament on that rock, which means everything on that rock counts. <laughs> ten words, it's called the Decalogue, ten words, ten commands that fill up the whole moral foundation of Israel's understanding of what it means to love the Lord. And the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. Two tables in the Ten Commandments. One, a vertical table about how we relate to God directly, and the second tablet has to do with how we relate to one another. You don't lie, don't steal, don't covet, and don't murder, right? But the first of the second tablets, when we're going to talk about human relationships, he says, let's start here. Let's respect your parents. It made the short list. Honor them. Paul says, when you're being brought up, honoring your parents means Obey them. Obey them in the Lord. So this next point in our notes is this. Obedience to parents is a matter of Christian discipleship. Obey your parents in the Lord. So kids, when you read those words, God is saying to you, I consider you to be, it's, it's almost like the assumption in this text is, you want to be a follower of Jesus, don't you? Do you want to follow Jesus? Do you want to be his disciple? In the Lord, obey your parents. It's the first of the instructions that's given. And not just when you feel like it. Obey your parents because it's right. It, because it's God's design and God is good and God is wise. And when you obey your parents, you're saying, I believe God is good. You're saying, I believe God is wise. I trust his words above my own intuitions. I trust his words above my own preferences. What I want in the moment is to not do what they're asking me. What I want to do in the moment is to roll my eyes right now. And God is saying, no, 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 trust me. Trust me. Obey your parents. This is right. This is the best way. Dr. Uh, John Dixon is a brilliant scholar. He was on the faculty of classics at Oxford University. He's written a number of books related to archaeology, related to the defense of the faith and apologetics and so forth. Uh, but it's interesting, in one of his books, he tells a story about 
parenting. And he tells a story about his faith in Jesus Christ and when he became a follower of Jesus. And here's what he says. This might be familiar to some of us or maybe we can relate. He writes, in my early zeal as a new teenage Christian, I frequently found ways to elevate my faith above my duties to my mother. I lost my father years earlier. I remember one Saturday morning kneeling by my bed, reading my Bible and praying. A voice came from the other end of the house. John, it's your turn to rake the leaves on the front lawn. I yelled back with all sincerity, I can't right now. I'm in the middle of something really important. The instruction grew louder and my reply more earnest. A few minutes later, my mother burst into the room to repeat her command and there she found me in all my faux piety. She walked right back out of the room. It pains me to admit it now, but in that moment, I thought I was being persecuted, just like the ancient Christians. <laughs> it is an embarrassing memory, especially as there was no reason I couldn't pray while raking the leaves. <laughs> so that's kind of the spirit of this text, is it's saying, obey your parents in the Lord. This isn't this massive you know, dichotomy. You only can do one at a time. Your obedience is as as unto the Lord. It's like this in our notes. We can hold on to it. Your obedience, kids, to your parents is your yes to God's question, do you trust me? When God says, do you trust me, your obedience to your parents is, I do trust you. Why, why, why is that connected? Because this text is aimed at your faith filled obedience, not just your outward behavior change, right, or just kind of slumping your way forward and doing the stuff, right, and saying, does that satisfy you? No, that's not the spirit this text is going after. It wants glad-hearted, buoyant, trusting obedience. Why? Because this text says, honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you. It comes with a promise. God says, if you trust me, your life is better when you obey, not worse. It might feel worse, but your life is better when you obey. When you do this thing your mom has asked you to do, despite your feelings to the contrary, and you do it because you trust God is good, and I know what he said in his word. Douglas Wilson was on a debate tour many years ago with an atheist the late Christopher Hitchens, and before one of the debates, there was a camera crew asking him questions. And they asked him the question, uh, why are you a Christian? And his ultimate answer at the end, he said, ultimately I'm a Christian because of the grace of God, which I love. But I also love where he started. He said, and he said it with no sense of embarrassment at all. And I think it was shocking to the people who heard it because he said, I'm a Christian because my parents were Christians. He said, they taught me well, and I trust them, and I love them, and I respect them, and they're neither fools nor liars. He said, I saw the joy that they had in their Christian faith, and it was compelling to me. He wasn't embarrassed. He wasn't ashamed to say that. In this culture, I think we all know this, right? You're never gonna be taught to say anything like that. You're never gonna be taught to say anything remotely like, my parents love Jesus, why not me? My parents trust the Lord, why should I trust something else? My parents cling to God's word, I will too. 
But the Bible talks like that. Matter of fact, the very first hymn that was ever sung in the Bible was sung at the base of Mount Sinai on the, other, on the far side of the Red Sea. And they sang Exodus chapter 15. And Moses says, I will exalt my father's God. There's this readiness, this inclination to respect a generation that's gone before us and they're neither fools nor liars. God's instruction is aimed at this. Look, God, he doesn't want to do something that the world is already seeing every day. He wants to do something that shows the radical difference the gospel makes in our hearts. That's what this is about. He's after our hearts. So God talks to kids, second point. God talks to parents. God talks to parents. What is Jesus doing? Think about this. What is Jesus doing in the world? He's undoing the curse. That's what he's doing through, through the message of the gospel, through the church, as his kingdom advances, outpost after outpost after outpost of kingdom newness is breaking out in human hearts as the spirit takes over our lives, right? He's, he's beginning to undo all that the fall has broken. He's, he's, he's taking it to Satan. He's taking it to his teeth, right? Every place that was claimed by Satan is now counterclaimed by Jesus in the gospel. It was Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, who famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not cry, mine. And Ephesians 6 is Jesus saying, your family is mine now. Your home is your home address, your living room, your bedroom, your kitchen, all that is mine. Your parenting is mine. Your marriage is mine. He's laying claim. There, there was even a prophecy that pointed to this, a prophecy about the herald who would roll out the red carpet for the Messiah himself. It was pointed to John the Baptist ultimately that he was that herald. And there was a prophecy about the work of John the Baptist that he would get ready a people for God. He would prepare them for God. And it said he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to do what? To turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And here in this passage, what's God doing? He's, he's turning the disobedient away from the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, and he's turning the hearts of fathers, parents, to their children. It's a softening word that's going on here. That's why I said in the name of the message, God calls a family meeting, because this is a come to Jesus, and it's a come to Jesus for the whole house. It's not just a come to Jesus for the kids. It's to come to Jesus for everybody. God is asserting his authority over the Christian home, over every person in the house. That's why we have this in our notes. God's first word to parents is don't. What's that mean? It means parents have boundaries too. There's stuff we can't do. Even though we have authority in the household, there's stuff we can't do. We don't have a carte blanche to do and say whatever we need to do and say to get stuff done, to get them moving in the right direction. No, God says there's stuff you can't do. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children. Obviously, that doesn't mean moms can, right? It's, it's not like, hey, you know, we need to stir up anger in the kids. I can't do it. Ephesians 6, 4, but you can't, right? No, no, in that sense, 
why is Paul addressing fathers? Well, we could go right back to chapter five and see that what Paul is doing is he's, he's talking about the ideal scenario where there's a father and there's a mother and the father is called to be the spiritual leader in the house. He's, he's called to dial in the spiritual thermostat for the house. And so if there's a placeholder and there's only gonna be one addressed, he's gonna say, dads, set the temperature at this place. Here's what you can't do. Here's what needs to happen in the house where you're giving spiritual leadership. But it's not stretching this text in any way to say that this command really belongs to fathers and mothers. We could find all over the book of Proverbs where, the, uh, where Solomon, who's writing, is saying, son, pay attention to me and your mom. Listen to your mother's instructions so that both of them are, are forming and shaping and discipling in the home. Really, this command belongs to both. And the reality is, look, the world has fallen, Right? Sometimes dad isn't in the picture. Sometimes he's in the picture, but he doesn't know the Lord. In my case, as I've told you before, a third of my childhood, I was raised by a single mom. I have immense respect for the work of single moms and God's grace on their lives. And so God's word is, is coming to us here and saying, this is what redemption's gonna look like when God moves in on the parenting work in the household. Here's, here's my story, so connected to this, this command. What's it mean? The command, don't stir up anger in your children. So I am constitutionally an idealist. I'm an Enneagram one. And I ha- once I read something, once I find out this is the way it's supposed to be, that's the way it's supposed to be, that, right? So we don't have another standard, that's the standard. And uh, so, <laughs> so you add children to that, and things get interesting. They, they get interesting pretty fast. So I had, when we were about to welcome new life into our home, uh, I had read a book, one book, on parenting. Now, it was the book. I mean, it was not just any book. This was the book that told you, if you do these things, and it kind of spelled it out that way, if you do these things, your infants will sleep through the night, like within a couple of weeks. They're going to eat on your schedule, not on their schedule, right? They're not going to fuss and cry like all the other worldly kids do, right? It's, it's just, it set things up in this crazy, unrealistic way, but I didn't know that. I read the book. These people have been parents for years, and apparently this is what we do. And then when they get older and they're not infants, their two favorite things in the world are going to be obeying and sharing. They're going to they're gonna love obeying their parents. It's going to be like their favorite thing, and right a, a close second is sharing my toys with my siblings, just letting her just chew on that thing, which I got for Christmas. That's my pride and joy. That's awesome, right? I got the impression that if we did the stuff in this book, that's what would happen. I think it was Mike Tyson who said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And uh, we got punched in the face in 1998. His name was Hunter. And, uh, and the Lord humbled us, <laughs> Mainly me, right? My, my wife was, she, she was shaping me in ways already, just like, I'm not sure that this is the way we should take it. And I think you need to soften in that. I think you need to give him some grace in that area. I'm like, there, there is no grace. I mean, we do the thing in the book. Um, three years later, <laughs> humbled and exhausted. And I've never hated an author more than the author of that book, right? Uh, if, if he had lived in town, I would have brought my dog over and let him like poop in his lawn or something. Like, I, I was so mad because I thought, 
You lied. Either you lied or your kids don't count. Like your kids are cyborgs. They, they weren't born with original sin like everybody else's. So I started looking for a book where, where the parents seemed to say that our kids have original sin. So I went and found another book and I, I thought this book was going to help me fix my kids with original sin. And it, uh, it did a sneak attack and it came at me. And there was a list of 25 things that fathers in particular, and it needed to be aimed at me in particular, that fathers in particular do to stir up anger in their kids. 25 ways to effectively harden your children against glad-hearted obedience. Here were some of them. Being legalistic, focusing on outward behavior, finding fault, modeling sinful anger, allowing there to be, his words, a residue of displeasure in our relationship with a child. Not admitting you're wrong. Not asking for forgiveness. Allowing too much freedom. I didn't need that one as much. Not allowing enough freedom. Unrealistic expectations. Correcting stuff kids do because they're five and they're not 35 like you are. That, and that's, that list and more of them were all over me, and it was like the Holy Spirit was saying, listen, the biggest sinner in the house, Matt, is you. The one who needs to start the repenting festival is you. You're stirring it up. You're provoking them to anger. There's another way. There's a winsome way. There's a way of grace it's not absent of discipline. It's not absent of expectations. The question we might need to ask is, am I insisting on my own comfort and labeling it biblical discipline? But really, if you got to the heart of it, it's, this is my castle, and I want peace and quiet. Well, you said goodbye to peace and quiet when you brought a child into the world, right? Right? You kissed that goodbye when you bought the minivan. Right, that, All of that stuff, it's like realistically, your life is going to get more complicated. Here, Real talk, parents. I, we can get immediate obedience, can't we? We have ways. We can get immediate obedience and we can lose them in the end. And maybe some of you here have seen that story play out. I was a college minister, my wife and I for 10 years, and we saw that story play out time and time again. The children just couldn't wait. Get me out of this house, this suffocating, oppressive environment, and let me be free for once. And if we stop and think, if God called out every one of my false steps, if he held all of my motives in this air of suspicion, I'd be counting the days until I can get out of the house too. In other words, God doesn't treat you and me that way as sinners. Again, it doesn't mean we don't have expectations. It doesn't mean there's no discipline. We do expect obedience. They do need to change their tone when they speak to their mom. But we don't fight their sin with ours. We don't fight fire with more fire. There's a new way. God says, I'm going to do this differently than the way that the world did it. The scripture says, a harsh word stirs up anger. You want to stir up anger? Use harsh words. 
And yet that same Bible says, a gentle tongue can break a bone. There's another kind of influence. The wrath of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. So what's your job? Paul says, bring them up. In the original language, in the original Greek, the root word is trepho, and trepho means feed. Trepho means nourish. It's a sweet word. It's not a hostile word. It's not a hard word. It's not a two by four. It's a feed them, nourish them, garden their hearts. I love that metaphor of feeding and nourishing, right? It makes me think of parenting as meal preparation. That's a different metaphor. Meal preparation, you're feeding them truth. You're feeding them wisdom, feeding them and nourishing them in words of grace, filling their hearts up with love for Jesus. I remember hearing uh, Brian Chapel, who was the president, maybe still is, of Covenant Seminary. And, and Chapel said, one day I was pouring cereal for my, small, my young children And he said, as I was pouring the milk into the bowl, he thought, this is what I need to do. I need to fill up their hearts with love for Jesus. If I just have one thing, that's the thing I want to do. I want to fill up their hearts with love for Jesus. The joy of teaching our kids God's word. The powerful practice of repenting to them, asking forgiveness from them. The joy of teaching them how to pray. This This is nourishing. This is feeding. This is something new. Pointing out evidences of God's grace in them. Think of the fact that Jesus has prophesied that the Messiah would come and he wouldn't quench the smoking ember. He wouldn't quench the smoking flax. So parents, we can do that. We can see a sort of dying ember and say, Psst, just, there's nothing there. There's, there's no grace in our child's life. Jesus said, I'm going to nurse that thing back to life. It's, it's smoldering, and I'm going to faintly and gently breathe on that smoldering ember until it quickens again, blessing them verbally. So three takes a, takeaways. Ephesians 6 is for the whole church. So Paul is writing to the entire congregation because it takes the whole congregation, the whole congregation, all of us, we have a stake in the raising of the next generation. Psalm 78 says this, we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. It's the work of the Great Commission. Teach them. Those who believe in Jesus, disciples, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And the Great Commission is not sent to nuclear families in the church. The whole church is needed to be online. We need you in preschool ministry. We need you in Brook Hills Kids. We need you leading small groups in the student ministry. We need that mentoring work in the church. It's not just on us as families. We need allies, advocates. Number two, lead by example. Lead by example. The, the, the best lecture you'll ever give on repentance is you repenting. Best teaching you'll ever give on prayer is you praying in their hearing, praying for them, praying with them. We need to show them how it's done. We need to show them what it looks like. My dad and mom, they taught us how to worship God. They taught us that God was above all and he deserves our worship no matter what we feel like. He deserves our praise. You know when we keenly studied that? is when calamity struck. 
So we had heard about the sovereignty of God when dad falls in the pulpit in 1988 in the middle of his sermon. The next Sunday, I'm watching because our now family of four walks into that same room, small church building, over the spot where dad fell. Mom put us on the front pew, came up to the organ, pulled the mic forward, and the church sang, the Lord liveth, and blessed be the rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. And I never heard that song the same way. And I'm looking at my mom and I'm thinking, she believes it. She really believes it. Even today, this most painful Easter Sunday in 1988, she believes it. Third, foster an environment of grace. Ephesians 6 is not here to create an environment in your home that feels like spiritual boot camp. It was the great pioneer missionary David Livingston who wrote to a friend in his later years. He said, I hope you are playing with your children. In looking back, I have one regret, and that is that I did not feel it my duty to play with my children as much as to teach the natives. I worked very hard at that and was tired out at night. Now I have none to play with, so my good friend, play while you may. They will soon no longer be children. You may want to read some resources, so I brought one, the other one I have on Kindle, but uh, Parenting with Words of Grace by William P. Smith is the one I have on Kindle. I've just started reading that book. It's it's really good, really encouraging. And then this book, Show Them Jesus by Jack, I can't pronounce his last name, Klumpenhauer, maybe? Um, excellent book that gets at what some of what we're talking about here and gets a little bit more practical with that. So what does God want to do? He, um, he wants to write a new story in our homes. My wife has put a verse on our refrigerator right above the water dispenser. And so I see it every time I fill up water and, and it says this, you'll be familiar with it if you grew up in church or are familiar with the Bible. It says, let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's a church-wide effort. Let's keep sowing because God has a stake in this. Our, our desire is for our whole church church families to get more and more healthy by the grace of God. 